Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you. Um, so great to see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Mark Miller. I've been heading up ODI's public finance work for about five years, and I, I now have a new role as Director of Global Strategy here. It's a great pleasure to be here, um, and that we've been set up really well in the, the introduction. Um, these, you know, this kind of new paradigm that we've been presented with sounds fantastic. Uh, I think we'd all sign up to that. I'm now going to bring us back into the sort of the realities of finance ministries and see how and whether that resonates with uh, the excellent panel that I have here today. So we know that the range of technology options that finance ministries can use to build their PFM systems is expanding and it's increasing the potential for interoperability with systems across the rest of government and beyond. But this session will focus on how different finance ministries are responding to those opportunities. I've also got something written here that says, note for chair, essential that this session finishes on time. So I'll be quite strict with all the panelists about how, uh, how much time they can spend. So apologies in advance. So on the panel, uh, we have here joining me today, Dr. Yakama Jones from the Ministry of Finance in Sierra Leone and Henny Swanepoel from the National Treasury in South Africa, both of whom I'll introduce more fully before they speak. But joining us online, you can see uh, Alok Verma, who is the Technical Assistance Advisor in the Fiscal Affairs Department of the IMF. He was previously the IMF resident PFM advisor for Eswatini, and before that, he spent over a decade in various roles in the government of India, focusing on the digital transformation of public expenditure management. He's currently leading a new initiative from the Fiscal Affairs Department on fiscal data governance. He's been carrying out surveys and workshops on fiscal data through the IMF's technical assistance centers, and most recently, the Center for Excellence in Finance. We're also joined by uh, Robert Bachmuller, the Chief Strategy Officer from the Center for Excellence in Finance, who can also comment on some of Alok's work. But that's, that's enough from me. Alok, over to you to tell us a bit about this uh, piece of work that you've been involved in. Thank you very much for such a nice introduction, Mark, and a very good morning, early good morning from Washington, DC. I hope you can hear me well. Great, so allow me to share my screen. Uh, okay. Can you see? We can, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so uh, as Mark mentioned that I will be speaking about uh, one of the analytical work uh, which we are doing in Fiscal Affairs Department on Fiscal Data Governance. And as part of this work, we are organizing uh, workshops in our regional technical assistance center. And also we did uh, one uh, with CEF uh, in Southeast Europe. So as part of the workshop, we are administering a survey to capture FDG practices from uh, our member countries. And what we are, uh, we are going to do today is present some insights from that and what are the implications on uh, digital transformation of public financial management. Okay. So, uh, but before going there, I would like to briefly also discuss what we mean by fiscal data governance, because for some, this may be a new term. 
which uh, we are using now. So what we mean by FTG is basically to strengthen overall data handling practices, how a staff of the Ministry of Finance and line ministries are basically interacting with the data in IT systems throughout the data life cycle. And uh, on the right hand side, you can see that life cycle starts from the creation of data, it is storage, processing, reporting, archival and purging. And uh, the objective is like how these data handling practices could be improved uh, to improve the overall quality, quality of fiscal data throughout its life cycle. And basically the objective is to support optimal use of fiscal data in policy making. And we understand that uh, the high quality fiscal data actually works as a foundation for PFM digital transformation, interoperability and trust. And uh, some of uh, speakers earlier also underlined this quality of the data and the data register in, in their remarks. And uh, we understand and what we are focusing on is that by institutionalizing fiscal data governance practices, uh, we can ensure high quality fiscal data to support efficient and effective PFM processes. Uh, Alok, sorry, does, yeah. does anyone know how to, uh, do you know how to use the full screen? We're seeing just the presenter view. Here's a, here's a digital question for everyone. Does anyone know the button to display settings? It's hidden under the three dots there. there yeah. Now it's okay? Perfect, thank you. Okay, great, thank you. So um, as part of the IMF survey of fiscal data governance, uh, we have conducted for uh, regional uh, events in Afitakis our South Asia Regional Technical Center and uh, with also SEF in Slovenia. And uh, we got uh, responses from 26 countries uh, which are included in our database. And uh, what I'm going to present today is not the overall, like the, all the responses, but some key responses which are more, more relevant to today's discussion. And uh, we also uh, found from the survey that there are around 12 different types of PFM IT systems which are being used uh, by different countries. So uh, in terms of PFM IT system compliance with FDG regulatory framework, we found that uh, countries are doing well in terms of their legal framework. 70% countries are having some legal framework for FDG and there is a government-wide data governance rules which are available in 70% countries. However, uh, there is more departmental responsibilities assigned to specific departments in the Ministry of Finance or at a higher level in 80% of countries. But when it comes to like uh, compliance with data privacy laws, because this is a new trend, like that countries are coming up with their data privacy law to protect the individual data. And uh, the systems are not yet ready to comply with these data privacy laws. So only 40% countries have responded that they have initiated or you know, done some action to meet the requirement of data privacy laws. And uh, another uh, area is uh, fiscal metadata availability. So metadata is basically the data about data. It describes what data is there in the systems. And uh, there are only 30% countries which are having this metadata available. So the question is like, if countries don't know what kind of the fiscal data is available, there are no data dictionaries. So there is no clear view of what kind of the data residing in their PFM IT system. So this is, uh, one uh, finding uh, from that survey. 
And then uh, next is uh, reliability of PFM IT systems integration. So only 19% countries are having very reliable integration between different PFM IT system. As I mentioned earlier, there are like the 12 different PFM IT systems which are being used by countries. And then the, the thing which I was discussing earlier, if the metadata is not available, if countries that authorities does not know, authorities do not know like how, what kind of the data is there in their PFM IT systems, obviously the next logical thing is like how to integrate so that there is like 90% countries having only reliable integration. Uh, another area which we captured is regarding the coverage of transactions in PFM IT systems. So uh, in 50% countries, not all transactions are captured in PFM IT systems and 23% countries respond, you know, there is no response. So only 27% countries are saying they fully cover all transactions in their PFMIT system. And that is again an indicator of poor quality of fiscal data. So it is not comprehensive. And if it is not integrated, it is also not timely available. And the next aspect which we captured is regarding management reports from PFMIT systems. And uh, only 46% countries responded that they produce management report from PFMIT uh, systems. And obviously then there are issues in the data availability, which we discussed earlier, like the, the integration and like the coverage of transactions. So countries, uh, you know, many times leads to collecting manual data uh, fiscal data to prepare management reports. And then we also asked about the confidence of uh, the management in the PFMIT system reports and uh, uh, to only 23% countries responded that they have very high confidence in the reports which are printed from the system. And that also reflects like the, you know, on the overall purpose of these uh, PFMIT systems, whether and we, when we say like the integrated financial management information system. So the, the integra integration between the PFM IT system is also not reliable. And when it comes to management information system, it is also not, that objective is not also fully met uh, with a very high level of confidence. So that underlines the overall, you know, somewhere the purpose of uh, these systems which we are putting in place. And the other challenge which we captured in this survey uh, is, is basically weak capacity for fiscal data governance, which uh, Robert will be also speaking a little bit about, and the siloed approaches and lack of data interoperability, which I also mentioned earlier. So in terms of implications, uh, I will not uh, deep dive into it, but I, I will leave with some questions here. Like, uh, is it not leading, if you are not having good high quality fiscal data in PFMIT systems, it is basically uh, leading to suboptimal use of PFMIT systems and all the big investments which we are making in digitalization of PFM processes. And uh, other implication which we need to also think about is uh, on the availability of data in public domain. So if the data is not reliable, even management is not using that with high confidence, then what we are putting in public domain, uh, what kind of the quality of the data we are putting and whether that is also an innovating or like a, you know, a barrier in publishing more data in, in, in public domain. And then we are talking a lot about using artificial and machine learning, digital transformation. 
So can we do data-driven decision-making? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, this is one of the focus. If there is no you know, quality data, so whether data could be used for uh, making decisions, you know, and there could be like some automation of the de decision-making processes around that. And another is like what I was also, uh, what I would like to mention is artificial and machine learning, which is basically data hungry and the quality of the data, which is basically used to train these algorithms to automate uh, judgment-based, uh, you know, uh, processes, uh, whether this kind of the data will be useful to adopt such technologies. Would we not uh, land up with uh, some kind of uh, uh, biased uh, decision-making processes with inferior quality of fiscal data. And then next is like uh, linked uh, item is whether this low quality of fiscal data is also preventing the leapfrogging to, to digital transformation. I think I will leave these questions and uh, given this opportunity, we can discuss further, but I will hand over my uh, floor to Robert basically. And uh, as, as I mentioned, it is more on like how individuals are handling the data. So there is a human touch to do to digitalization and uh, Robert will also touch upon that. Over to you, Robert. Super, thank you, Alok, and good morning to everybody in London and uh, around the globe. It's been a great pleasure to work with Alok and the Fiscal Affairs uh, Department team on this workshop. Now, what? What did it bring out? It was 11 countries whom we had represented there, the ministries of finance and very diverse um, departments, levels and uh, backgrounds. And now what I've realized, this gave us a little bit like a magnified view on um, uh, what are the challenges in PFM reforms uh, in, a, in a wider perspective. So, Talking about the digitalization of PFM, we actually saw amplified the needs for new skills, the needs for stronger collaboration and for taking more of a, let's say, ecosystem perspective on how these PFM reforms actually um, uh, are carried out and bring improvements for the, for the end users. Now, with that, basically, I would like to encourage us that we add the HR perspective to the two perspectives that uh, Marco already mentioned to the PFM and digital perspective and look more um, deeper at the learning journey that the ministries are going um, through. Basically, we um, among the countries, we had also countries who were um, recently attacked quite seriously um, by cyber attacks. This was Albania and Montenegro and they shared their case studies. And uh, these cyber attacks exposed that the individuals teams and institutions um, who are basically were affected um, weren't ready as a group for this. Um, there were a lot of weaknesses exposed, but it gave also momentum uh, for further learning. Uh, in doing this pre-survey, we noted that there's not much um, uh, capacity development support uh, in this context. So for example, how to develop, manage, feed, and use this uh, digital PFM uh, systems. So in uh, focusing on this new paradigm, uh, I recommend we take and add also this focus on the people that are needed um, to develop the system further. Maybe um, 
what could be important to look at um, in our further discussion is um, already to start from the recruitment of the institutions, how they ensure to bring in um, the right qualified staff, new people with new disciplines that are needed, how they manage to retain it and manage the talents they have in the institutions, how they can promote wider digital skills among the staff. We learned quite a few examples how very, um, let's say, uh, how very basic errors have led to um, uh, that the countries in, um, for example, Albania, Montenegro were affected quite seriously uh, in terms of their data security. But we um, should also, that's what I've learned from these discussions at this workshop, um, uh, see it as a iterative learning approach um, and where basically more and more people are brought on board. It takes time. It takes time for jointly developing a, a sharpening the mindset, um, developing the culture to basically um, get everybody in the institution agile to respond um, to um, yeah, the needs, the end needs, but also the security risks. And um, I've learned that uh, in the discussion, the attention to the risk um, is, is often quite rudimentary and such cyber attacks uh, we learned from some participants was actually very good to alert everybody um, of taking a more systematic approach to the risk assessment. So maybe here then to conclude, um, if we take a look at uh, PFM reforms and how we can bring in this people focus the iterative approaches into the PFM reforms. It is even more uh, amplified if we look at the digital PFM um, and um, the discussion on fiscal data governance programs, how they, um, what it all takes that Alok also presented actually um, uh, provides an opportunity to um, yeah, embed it in this ecosystem in which the program needs to be developed and uh, functional. So much for that. And I look forward to the discussion. Thanks to the ODI team for having us on board. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Alok. Thank you, Robert. Um, a particular thank you, Alok, for getting up so early. Um, but there's some really uh, quite sobering and thought-provoking uh, data that you shared and a lot of thought-provoking implications for discussion and the points you raised, Robert. I'm sure that lots of people have got questions sort of materializing in their heads. But before we open up the discussion, I want to now turn to Dr. Yakima Jones. So it says here that as well as being a lecturer, entrepreneur, philanthropist and mother, Dr. Jones is currently the Director of Research and Delivery at the Ministry of Finance in Sierra Leone. Um, so we're delighted to have you here today. Um, to talk a bit about the experience of the government in using technology for PFM and how you see that evolving over time. So perhaps I can start with a question um, and you can just perhaps describe for us the technology that underpins the PFM system in Sierra Leone. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, like we all talk about the public financial management as as a means to management of resources. So in Sierra Leone, definitely our PFM landscape cuts across budget preparation, execution, treasury management, and audits. So when we're thinking about how we implement policies and reforms to help us maintain um, aggregate fiscal discipline, we're looking at both the revenue side of things and the expenditure side of things. 
So our PFM architecture cap, um, we have tools that looks helps us manage the revenue side of things and the expenditure side of things. But the key thing here is that revenue and expenditures are not different um, coins. The two sides of the same coin. So the decisions we make often regard them. Um, we need to have trade-offs. And what's interesting is that the PFM digital tools that we have are not interoperable across these spaces. So for example, in the revenue side, one of the big um, revenue chunks we have is customs. And we use the UNCTAD Asikuda world system for that. That is COTS, of course, and it's disaggregated because different custom brokers can use it from wherever they are and customs can see the information that's contained therein. But then it's interoperable with the different modules within the system. You have the valuation. Recently, they developed one around um, getting relief items in. But then it's not interoperable with the other revenue and platforms that we have. So we have the electronic cash register system for collecting GST, what you have here as VAT. And of course, there are different points of sales that business people can use to register that. And it's and NRA can see what's happening on the revenue side from their offices, but the ECR is not linked to the customs um, um, platform, so they're very disconnected. We also have the integrated tax administration system, and that one's a really good one because if up to 2015, we had about 14, 14 different software platforms that we use for personal income tax, for corporate income tax, for GST, but with the integrated tax administration system, now there's a single platform where you can use to file income taxes, personal and, com and corporate income taxes. But that platform is not linked to the GST, um, the ECR platform or the, um, the ASICUDA platform. And one of the things also is that when you look at on the expenditure management side, um, as um, the IMF um, presenter just said, we have IFMIS, and we use the one that Free Balance um, and, um, has developed. It's also a off the self solution that's customized for Cellion. It's expensive, and but it doesn't speak to the the systems we have at Customs. So. At some point before we upgraded to the version seven, the web-based version of IFMIS, we had a in-house, the government to the Directorate of Science, Technology and Innovation developed what we call EPET. So EPET is like the first half of the budget um, allocation process. And we digitized that and was on um, um, those that need to make allocations can use it on their phone. For, but it was just part partial because it's just the first half of the system. And then there was the part two for the um, accountant general to implement. But then when we upgraded to the web-based IFMIS, the IPEX became um, outdated. So, <laughs> so we had to drop that and monies had been spent, capacity mm -hmm. has been built on rolling that out. So you just see how different systems, we build them say for institutional mandates, but not considering how we all need to work across the PFM space to, to move that forward. So for Sierra Leone, we have different um, PFM digital platforms that do not speak to each other. They're not interoperable. They're mostly cost um, off the shelf solutions and they're really difficult, expensive to um, access, also expensive to upgrade because they're proprietary licenses 
And then of course, when it comes to the capacity to implement them, it's always bringing in experts from abroad to come train and roll out. But then one of the good things is that aspects of it is decentralized, especially for um, central government when you have different MDAs. So like for IFMIS, we roll out to more than 60 MDAs. So they're not always coming into the Ministry of Finance Central Building to request for their allocations and payments. So they can do that remotely, but then, when we look at how we can use the data for decision making and how it cuts across the different pieces from debt management to revenue to actually treasury management, the systems don't stick to each other. Okay, I mean, I think that sounds like a fairly uh, recognizable story from uh, many places that mm -hmm. there's this kind of patchwork of systems that um, don't always necessarily talk to each other that well. But I'm interested to know, I mean, you've spoken a bit to some of the, the challenges in using these various technologies effectively, but from a, your finance ministry perspective and also the wider government perspective, are there kind of particular pain points and challenges that you'd like to draw attention to? Yes, there are pain points. But before I speak about the pain point, it's not all bad. Not because they don't the systems are not interoperable, they don't speak to each other. That makes it bad. Of course, there are really good things about it. So one of the good things it has helped us um kind of bring some sanity into revenue administration and management, also helping with how we manage the budget in terms of budget preparation execution in the system. You're able to set ceilings in the system so you know how you're drawing down on resources. And of course, there's an it allows you to have an audit trail. So digitization is good, but definitely the pain points, like I've said, is um, they're really expensive. How they're designed, it's like not from a problem, institutional problem solving approach. It's like the developers already have their solutions and then you need to customize to, or adapt your systems to fit into whatever the off-the-shelf solution is like of course when we're talking about um, decentralization at local government level human capacity issues and um, connectivity issues even having the devices computers and stuff to um, roll out the systems on and then one of the other things also is that when we're talking one of the things we usually talk about when we're saying leading PFM reforms is how we make these um, reforms about bringing in more accountability and transparency into governance. So when we have these different digital platforms, it always, in one of the um, paper and discussion papers, there was a quote about um, um, that PFM data should be open, but not all data should be um, widely accessible. So having those trade-offs is really one of the pain points for ministries of finance, because we have the open budget survey, we have civil society trying to see how government is in terms of efficiency in spending, whether we're spending on the right things and stuff like that. But when we have these platforms, having the resources or the know-how, or even the flexibility to customize them to say, okay, this aspect of the platform should be open access and this part of it should be restricted as it's really a pain point for us because it's not easy to do and we don't have um the know-how in country or in-house to do that and sometimes when you reach out to the developers their proprietary software and to make those amendments are quite um expensive so those are key pain points for us and even when governments are now moving towards this and minimal um, minimization like trying to reduce the number of different platforms you're using across the pfm space just trying to get them integrated or um, getting them to be interoperable is also 
difficult because everyone has different of the self solutions. Nobody wants to easily integrate with another um, developer. So there is competition. So it's really a pain point for ministries of finance. And if even we want to do it in house, the restrictions or we don't have the local know how to do that. So those are critical pain points for us. Great. Well, I think that's a really sort of vivid picture of where the situation is at now. What's your sort of, I guess, vision for how things evolve in the future? How would you like to see the architecture for PFM evolving in Sierra Leone? Well, firstly, I want to see all these different platforms being integrated or um, interoperable, because then it will make a lot of sense to see how the one side of the equation impacts the, the other side of the equation for decision making. And I also want to see going forward, because we're planning on rolling out certain other platforms like for e-procurement. We already have a debt management platform, the Commonwealth one, but then there are modules that we could activate in if needs to help with debt management. We're also planning on rolling out a national switch. So it's how this PFM platforms can also work with the broader um, financial system in terms of um, deepening the financial sector. We have initiatives around mobile money, how all of that will come together. So it's how the design process can be more agile and also more outcomes um, oriented. So when the design in four countries, you look at what the country's um, current um, system is and what they're working towards. So you you build towards helping that country achieve it, um, its vision for its PFM and financial um, space rather than just having a solution that the country needs to bend backwards to fit in. And then the other key piece for me is also how we're having these conversations, not just the PFM people, but also the data people, the tech people, and also those in service delivery, so that when these tools or these platforms are rolled out, they can they add value to everyone's work because we're not only managing the resources for the sake of managing resources, we're managing resources for delivering services. And of course, we want to see data from the service arm because one of the things we do in Sierra Leone is a public expenditure tracking survey to see whether what we budgeted for is spent on the actual last mile delivery. So if we have a chain where all these different platforms are built and designed with these different um, thinking in mind. I think that is something that I like to see improve going forward. And of course, more on the human capacity side, building the capacity in country, um, trainer of trainer modules. So you can also not only work at central government level, but also local government level. So it's having the, how we design, how we roll them out, how we build the capacity and also how we fund them because they're expensive and usually sometimes they're written off as one lump um, development um, kind of um, expenditure, but then we, we need to have iterations of that. So maybe there should be components that could come under recurrent spending and also donors and governments could see how they can make that funding um, arrangement a bit more flexible. So more countries would be able to drive indicization in their PFM spaces, but also with resources to build the complementary things that we need in terms of connectivity, in terms of getting the tools in, because what's the use of having all these platforms, but then you don't have access to them and those that should use them don't have the skills to use them. And then those that should use them also are not actually actively engaged to make use of the information that's been used across this platform. 
because I think if we're driving reforms for public financial management and digitalization is to make sure the data that the policy makers and practitioners need is presented to them in the right form for them to take action on them. So I think that's what we should be thinking about. That sounds like a great vision, Dr. Jones, and I'm sure many people have um, sort of further questions around that. But before I sort of let the audience come in, I just want to now turn to uh, Henry Swanepoel to get another country perspective. Henny has held various roles at the National Treasury in South Africa. He's currently the Chief Director for Data Analysis in the Budget Office, and he knows the South Africa budget process and their tools for expenditure management inside out, apparently. Um, so, <laughs> we're <deli> <laughs> so we're delighted to have him here today to tell yeah. us where South Africa is in terms of its evolution of the techno technology architecture for PFA. Thanks, thanks, thanks Mark. Thanks, uh, Good morning, everybody. Thanks to the ODI, Katal, for uh, allowing us the opportunity. Um, th it was actually a very difficult assignment to prepare for this for this session uh, because the brief was kind of, uh, I won't say vague, but uh, not very specific. <laughs> and, you know, there is the danger that I can drone on for hours. So please just smack me if I'm, if I'm getting, getting off topic here. I, I, I prepared a few slides and, you know, I'm, I'm going to run through quite a few of them fairly quickly. Uh, but I thought this would be this would be a nice way for for us to kind of start this this discussion. Uh, in, in all my life in the Treasury, I have always spoken about that magical button uh, that that we as the financial practitioners can just press to get whatever information it is in whatever format. That, that it is required. Um, and I think that, that has got a lot to do with how we set up that interface with, with, with the systems. Uh, what you must realize is that in terms of many governments, uh, you know, the, the photo on the left-hand side is where we come from, uh, where there are still a number of institutions that have paper records that don't go through the normal kind of IT systems. And it's about how do we get to that following stage? And I use the, the bank example because what we are looking for is kind of a single interface where a practitioner you know, captures one transaction and in the background, there's a whole set of processes and procedures and classifications that happen in order to provide us with the data that, that falls out on the, on the other side um, of the system. And you know, sounds like a, a reasonably easy exercise, but in government, uh, actually quite a, 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 quite a challenge. Now, <clears throat> in terms of, of the South African context, and really the rest of my slides are a bit dense and you know, we'll circulate them. I'll just touch on a few things. I don't want to bore you with too much of the details, uh, but we still don't have a fully integrated uh, IFMIS in South Africa, right? We've got, uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, legacy systems, uh, most of them older than me, uh, and that's terribly old. Uh, so, but actually giving us, you know, broadly what we are looking for. Got a financial system that produces all of our financial information uh, roughly on time in a format that is, that is kind of uh, sensible at this point in time, supports our budget rollout, budget implementation budget execution. Of course, there are a number of holes in that, in that process that needs to be plugged. We've got an HR system 
that pays 1.2 million government officials on a monthly basis on different pay dates. And, you know, we have very few problems in that space. That's usually a good test, you know, because if your, if your HR system is not working, you will quickly see the government officials starting to throw rocks. Uh, we don't see that often. So, so even though it is a 35-year-old system, it is still uh, giving us uh, good service. <clears throat> I think some of the, the, the challenges when you think about the systems environment is just the whole area of accounting and how we deal with that. So what we have in South Africa typically, and same for many countries, is we've got different levels of government, different levels of government on different kind of accounting frameworks. So you've got cash adjusted, cash accruals, you've got your state-owned enterprises that run IFRS accounts, uh, you know, and in the end, all of that stuff arrives in, in our offices and, you know, we have to have to make sense of it. Uh, and unfortunately, as I said, that magical button uh, is still is still not there. I think one of the big exercises that we went through and that really helped us in, in improving the quality of data is kind of taking a step back and looking at the content of, of those systems and trying to kind of modernize and, and standardize the data space. Um, and in that sense, we embarked on a process way back in 2004 where we started building a proper standardized chart of accounts that all of the all of the institutions can use. Uh, you know, when when we started with that, just to give you a feel, uh, in 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 our centralized national provincial government financial system, we had about two million uh, line items of 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 classification that that departments could use. Now you can imagine the amount of confusion. Uh, and, and rubbish that kind of falls out of a system like that. So we went through a kind of a detailed process, cleaning that up, building a whole chart of accounts, various different reporting segments based on the, the, the general kind of reporting requirement, international reporting compliance. And, you know, I'll, I'll touch a bit on that. Um, so that, I think, a key reform that, that has to happen. Uh, of course, we are now in the process and have been in the process of going for the magical uh, off-the-shelf system. Uh, we have uh, decided to go for Oracle. Uh, we've got some SAP implementations in some of, some of our municipalities. Uh, but I think, you know, like Dr. Jones alluded to, uh, these are very expensive exercises and terribly difficult to procure in the government space. And I think that is something that, that we really need to to think about as, as practitioners. <clears throat> um, in, in my view, one of the big problems, the major problems we've got, and I think it was mentioned earlier, is that you know, we have got a bunch of budget practitioners and we are mainly economists uh, and the statisticians that has to, to report, uh, that has to engage with accountants, accounting professionals, chartered accountants, government accountants that view things in a very different way. Uh, and then we've got the IT and, and, and uh, you know, systems professionals. And, and that whole group of people must actually come together uh, and produce something that on the other side will give me my magical, uh, my, my magical button. 
The problem is we just don't speak the same language. And, and it's about really trying to figure out how we can make that work. You know, when I was looking, looking at the earlier uh, presentations, uh, you've got waterfall where you really have to think a lot about your business requirements. And I think I've written business requirements about 20 times over the last 20 years. Uh, very difficult to kind of get that across, uh, to try and understand what, you know, what, what is it that the, the technologists want from me in order to give me what I need. <laughs> um, I think even in the agile space, it's a problem uh, because you have to be in a position to really quantify your user need. Uh, and it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And quite often in that process, we miss one another and we don't really produce something that is useful on, on the other side. And what you end up doing is what we have been doing for you know, the last 24 years is we just run everything in Excel. So yeah, magically, the, the South African uh, budget annually, uh, I think it's about 2.7 trillion rand, but that's about $3 uh, budget is, is produced using a whole set of crazy Excel spreadsheet. And we consolidate roughly about 340 different institutional units through that process. Uh, so you can understand that it's you know, quite a challenge. So we have been really begging for a, a budgeting solution. And then that's linked on to your, to your uh, uh, systems environment. <clears throat> I think the other thing, and, 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 and my colleague mentioned that, is just all about the environment that we work in. Often when you, <clears throat> when you implement these things, and we, we've got a, a very good example, one of our provinces, the Western Cape, Cape Town, uh, city of Cape Town, decided to go for a SAP implementation. <clears throat> they ended up spending about three times what they originally budgeted for. Because when the system arrived, they suddenly realized that, you know what, we've got to rip the cables out of the walls and you know, completely change our whole, whole infrastructure environment, all the IT equipment, all of, all of that kind of stuff. So quite often what we do is we don't think about the full impact. Um, and for those of you that have ever worked in government, when you have a procurement system, uh, it is not as easy as walking in one morning and saying, well, we need new wires in the wall. Uh, usually it is a different department that has to run a different procurement process that actually has to budget for that in next year's budget only. Um, so it's a, it, in that sense, a complicated thing to, to make work. And, you know, costly and, and, and then obviously, uh, holding us back in a big way. I think when we think about digitalization, we, we often, often just think about transacting. You know, if you think of that first picture of mine, all I'm interested in is producing the financial accounts uh, and the consolidated accounts, but it's a lot more than that. It's also about providing information on spending outcomes and, and all kinds of other information that will inform uh, how we do costing and, and run our costing processes. And a lot of that information is not provided for in the systems currently. And it is something that, you know, one would have to think about in, in, in how you bring it, you bring it um, on board. <clears throat> um, for, for us, 
from a budgeting point of view, I think a lot, a lot of what guides this reform is about what we require as a kind of a data output uh, on, on the other side. And it, I think that is in some sense that kind of user requirements process that, that uh, uh, people refer to. Um, what I have seen with, with my limited experience or some other countries is that often we don't think about all the different aspects of the data and how that kind of interfaces with one another uh, when we think about producing, producing our reports. You know, a, a, a simple example, uh, if you really want to do proper project costing, you have to have a system where you can allocate wages and salaries to different projects, for example. Now, if your system is not set up in such a way that you can record that at the time of paying the salary, uh, then obviously, you know, you won't find the project cost on the other side. And, and that is kind of where your data structures become very important. It's very important to understand how the different pieces of data talk to one another. And I think we've, to this day, I think we are struggling to, to make uh, um, a lot of that, a lot of that uh, work. Um, let me just not forget to scroll on. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, of course, as government officials, uh, you know, we've got to kind of inform the policymaking process uh, in, in the form of doing the policy development, working on the data that, that, that provides input uh, into, into that space. So things like costing uh, becomes a, 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 you know, a fairly difficult exercise in a, in a space where uh, information is, is not readily available. Um, I think for, 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 for running a kind of a, a fiscal system, it's important that we are in a position to consolidate and provide data in a format that is that is kind of sensible for purposes of reporting. You know, the IMF has got reasonably strict rules uh, around how we've got to report and present our data, the GFS and all of that. Uh, and by the way, we often fight with them about, about, about going down that road. Uh, you know, but but it's important that that all of that is part of your mainstream of your of your kind of a, a financial reform uh, initiative. Uh, something that that in South Africa we've focused a lot on uh, over the last few years is just public access to our information. There's often there's an uh, there's an outcry from from uh, public interest organisations that really want to start getting there. Their hands dirty with with the with the financial information to start uh, interrogating what it is that that government is uh, government is doing. So we've had quite a number of initiatives, kind of web-based information releases. Uh, we now even at the point where we are releasing uh, on a monthly basis, we are releasing actual expenditure data at the detailed transactional level uh, into the public domain. Now, you know, most of that stuff is uh, excessively detailed and I, I don't think that there's probably anybody that's ever used it, but you know, <laughs> people, have, people have asked for it, so that is out there. Uh, but then on top of that, we build a whole set of in, in information uh, uh, releases that, that provides additional uh, uh, information. Some of, some of the important 
initiatives I think that is useful for anybody to, to consider when, when you think of the PFM reform is just the, the all the different kind of uh, classification modules and stuff. I think we've, we, we've basically touched on that. One area where I think it's key for, for the data space to work properly is kind of not just the integration across systems, but also integration across all the different reporting requirements. So, you know, I, I didn't include our kind of a, a accountability circle in this presentation, but effectively, if you think about data, uh, it all starts at the planning phase. Uh, from the planning phase, we go into budgeting, we go into budget execution, we go into, into uh, uh, annual reporting. And it's very important that all of that stuff must talk to one another. Uh, and quite often what you find is that you've got a budget format that is not aligned to the annual financial statement, that is not aligned to the financial system. So in that sense, I think there's a huge amount of work that first needs to happen on the kind of budgeting slash reporting side before you can really bring the technologists to the table in order to start designing your system. And often there's that, this misconception that, you know, just bring SAP and magically everything is going to be fixed. Uh, and, you know, we all know that is, is, uh, is not really going to be possible. One thing that, that I think often gets neglected is the whole issue of change management. Um, what we must remember is that mostly in government, uh, you know, people spend a lifetime working in a finance section. Uh, and they've got a lifetime of experience. And now you are arriving there with something new. Everybody's resistant to change. So it's very important that we properly think about how do we bring people on board? What kind of training initiatives are necessary? Um, I think the example that I used last night is, I was quite horrified this, this weekend when I, when I walked into a shop and I wanted to buy a bottle of water and picked up the water and I was looking around uh, looking for the place to pay and the person that's going to take my money, you know, and suddenly there's not that person anymore. There's a little machine and you stick the bottle there and you throw your money in and you, you know, walk out the door. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind is, well, you know, we now have this machine uh, that is replacing somebody's job. If I'm a government official and there's some technologist that walks in and says, you know what, we are going to completely change the way that government works and it's all going to be automated. The first thought is, well, then I don't have a job anymore. Uh, and there's immediately there's that huge resistance that is that is built up uh, in the system. So it's you know important that we bring people along uh, uh, on the ride when when uh, we try to to uh, to change. I wasn't too sure, you know, I was asked to say something about where do I think we, we want to see this going, but I think that was my first slide in some sense. You know, I'm still looking for the magical button. The day that I can press that button, I can retire and uh, I don't have to worry uh, about anything happening, uh, anything bad happening anymore. I think the one, the one issue that, that, needs a lot of consideration is this whole idea of this one size fits all kind of approach. Uh, you know, often we are told that, you know, just buy the Oracle and the Oracle will, you know, come and sort, sort out things in all departments. But there are various different institutions 
some small, some huge. Uh, and, and how do you make all of that work? What would be the, the most appropriate decision to, to take in terms of technology in, in order to, uh, uh, to make that work? You know, it's, it's I think we, and, and it's not just in terms of the technology, it's also in terms of the reporting requirements and, and, and things like that. You know, to have a small little museum uh, compile a set of accrual accounts and pay PwC, uh, you know, quite a few million dollars every year to to compile that for them, is not really adding adding a lot of value. So it's it's also important to understand what what can be done in that space. <clears throat> I think the the off the shelf systems as well, quite often was originally designed and built for the private sector, for IFRS accounting. Uh, and I often get the feeling that we now want to squeeze them uh, till they fit into the, into the government space. Uh, and, and often that requires quite a lot of uh, adjustments and, and, and changes and improvements. Um, it would actually be quite useful if you know, a, a group like this could sit down with the with the big service providers and spend a year or two to really go and design proper government financial systems that we can just buy off the shelf and actually implement without having to change uh, change half of them. And you know, maybe I am sticking my head into a hornet's nest now, but you know, so be it. Um, a, a big concern for us is then what's the future of the legacy systems, and and you know, sh should we? Should we not rather go and then go and find those old COBOL programmers or kind of retrain, you know, some of the some of the people out there and just revamp uh, our basic accounting system? Uh, you know, I know most of them are probably in old age homes by now, but uh, I'm sure we sure we could get we could get something something going. They've given us many years of good service. They are still paying whatever needs to be paid. My sense is maybe it is necessary to just spend a bit of money on them and we can get another 20 years from them and, you know, we can sit back in South Africa and wait uh, for the good crowd in this room to come up with a, with a beautiful solution. <laughs> I think in the end, what, what we really want to see is a situation where you've got limited human intervention. The moment that you've got somebody handling a piece of paper uh, the problems start. You, you really need to get to a situation where you've got uh, systems that produce purchase orders uh, that then results in invoices getting submitted automatically, uh, you know, automated sign-offs, all of those kind of things. It just limits the number of, of errors in, in your systems, and it really helps with the issue of corruption. Uh, because, you know, the moment that there's paper uh, involved, it just opens up the door for, for too many people to, to stick their hands uh, where, they, where they don't belong. Um, so roughly, I think that's my story. I hope I didn't drone on for too, for too long. Uh, thanks, no, Mark. Thank you very much, Annie. That was great. And I think there's a potential future consulting line there for you, <laughs> advising the likes of... Uh, the next phase of Oracle and SAP. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, I'll take an initial round from people within the room, but people online, please feel free to send questions through. I'll also take some questions from online. But who wants to kick off? I'll take three or four. 
uh, either. Uh, and please say your institutional affiliations and yeah. all that. Thank you. Yes, I'm Ivor Beasley from the OECD, um, from the budget division. Um, I was very interested in what you were saying about, you know, the potential of agile approaches to this. I'm very familiar from many years working in this sector with the, the waterfall approach, which civil servants, I think, feel comfortable with because it's logical and progressive. Um, and I'm just wondering what examples, if there are concrete examples of where people have delivered better solutions in this kind of public finance space using that kind of an approach. It sounds very interesting, um, but I, I want to be sure that it really works. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great, Ivor. Um, Gerardo, is it? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, uh, Gerardo Uña from the Fiscal Affairs Department from the IMF. I have two questions, one from Dr. Jones. You mentioned a lot of about the, these different systems and, and the problems to integrate the systems. But if you can explain a little more about the reasons of why you have so many different systems. Is a political decision from the authorities? Is some, something imposed by different donors? It's tradition. And I, I would like to understand a little more the reasons of why you have the, that landscape. And for Heine, uh, you mentioned that one of the challenges is related to the integration of the accounting and the reporting. Uh, and I fully agree that one of the key areas to improve the public financial management digitalization is to improve the, the information and the data. Uh, what, what are the challenges that you are seeing in, in achieve that integration between the accounting and the reporting? It's again, it's a, some issues related to the functional definitions because in your uh, explanation, you mentioned that the chart of account is already in place. So what's going on with the chart of account that cannot produce the fiscal reporting that they're looking for? I'm sorry for the long questions. I'll take a couple more. Uh, so I've got, um, yeah, please. Uh, thanks, James Hutt. Uh, I work as an independent consultant at the moment, looking at, uh, I guess, social and commercial impacts of technology. Um, my question's about the political will. Policymakers and ministers, decision makers at the moment, um, kind of get free reign precisely by not having access to this information because they can say that it's going to cost what they want. They can say that the impact is what they want. If, these, if you had the magic button, they would actually have their hands tied by reality quite a lot more significantly. I think the example in the UK is probably the OBR, um, who regularly produce numbers that ministers don't like and find themselves being criticised. If the magic button, as you talked about, existed, I think a lot of decision makers might find themselves with less room to move um, precisely because they have more information. So understanding, I'd be keen to understand how those stakeholders feel about the situation at the moment and how we can bring them on side as well. Okay. Uh, I'm keen to get some gender balance in the questioning, but, um, any, but otherwise I'll take one more. Marco. Marco Congiano, DI. And Alok, uh, Robert, just one Perhaps curiosity. Uh, in the presentation, you always repeat the, 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 the word countries. Countries responded, countries provided. Who, who, who actually within countries provided the answer? Because I wonder whether the, 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 the results capture fragmentation, silos, etc. If you ask somebody like Hani, the equivalent of Hani, for example, in Albania, 
might give you a completely different story if you ask somebody from a custom office or the budget office or somebody more down in the service delivery. For Dr. Jones and Honey, yeah, I, I've been hearing these things, these are expensive or costly, fine, for the last 10, 15 years. Has anybody ever looked at the opportunity cost? What if you don't go that route? What happened? Is it, what are the risks that we're facing? Thank you. One last one? No? No. Oh, okay, well, we'll come back to you for the next one. So, because uh, I think there's a few there too. Um, so I think I'll take the potential for agile approaches at the end, because unless unless either of you want to respond to that one, yep. uh, or um, okay, so I'll maybe I'm call. I'm not agile enough. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so Dr. Judge, do you want to come in first? I think there was a question around the sort of reasons why behind multiple systems, uh, and the question that Marco raised about you know, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I think one of approaching the. Um, response about different system is understanding the baseline from which every country is coming from. Because now if we're looking at um, countries like Leone, it's now we start talking about oh, catching up with the fourth industrial revolution. So it's like entities have been working in silos and every one of them is now saying, oh, there's digitalizations will help me become more efficient. Let me find a system that will help my entity become more efficient. Then somebody will hear like, oh, NRA is doing this to help them with revenue um, management and administration. They're becoming more efficient. I want that for my office as well. And then another office will go down finding their own solution. So it's not some kind of um, instruction broad-based. It's like every single entity trying to be efficient by leveraging um, tech. But then now they're understanding that we need a systems approach to this because whatever you do, you're delivering as a government, as a system. So now that's where the interoperability conversation is coming in. So it's just how the thought process or the change process had been managed from the start. It's now that we're getting to spaces where we need to say, okay, we've been trying to drive um, institutional efficiency. Now we should try to drive um, system-wide efficiency. And we've seen um, institutions are always that help guide us in our thinking like the World Bank and IMF rolling out um, GovTech um, um, discussions now, all looking at having a whole of government approach to digitization and stuff like that. And in terms of costs, yes, we say it's costly in terms of money. And we've not looked, so we're not saying um, cost versus not have um, rolling it out, but cost in rolling it out and whether there are more cost effective ways to do this. So now we're having conversations around digital public goods in the financial um, space and also making some of these solutions open source so that when you have capacity, we can also see how we can customize them for our individual countries. So it's cost in terms of money, not cost in terms of what what would have happened if we have not gone down the road of digitization? It's just how we can work with developers and um, as governments and institutions to find cost, much more cost-effective ways of helping us leverage digitization in the PFM space. And maybe just to James's question, there was this about the sort of magic button. Do you yes. think the magic button doesn't exist because it's hard to do or because it's people don't want the magic button? So from my um, point of view, I think 
just one magic button would not cut it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> but then we can try to see how we can work to have a critical mass of useful magic buttons. Okay, <laughs> okay. I think we'll come back to that. Henny, uh, <laughs> obviously. Um, there's a, yeah, yeah, I'll, right? uh, yeah I'll, let me start with that, with the whole kind of integration issue and, and the chart of accounts. I, I think f- from our point of view, the, the big thing has been around the accounting reform and just aligning the cash and the accrual accounts. Um, I think that is that is a substantive challenge. So if you've got uh, entities running full accrual, so we've got, for example, our local authorities run accruals, our public entities run accruals and, and, and state-owned enterprises and the rest of government is on some version of adjusted cash. Uh, I'm not always convinced that, you know, at, in some areas it's accrual accounts, it's probably just accrual account. Um, but trying to pull all of that together is, is quite, a bit of a, quite a bit of a challenge. Um, our chart of accounts nas- uh, nationally works perfectly well. We've done it for the local government. Uh, it pulls all of those, those accounts together quite nicely. Uh, but then to pull off the, all of that into the bigger uh, general government consolidation is, is sometimes a bit, a, bit more, um, a bit more of a challenge. So that, that is something, that is something to, to consider. I think in terms of the international reporting standards, you know, the GFS and the EPSAS, those are mostly compatible. There are some small little differences here and there, but you know, that those are issues that you can that you can work around. The difficulty is making all of that accessible to you know, the general public and politicians to understand. Uh, I think that is a that is a challenge that that many countries experience at this at this point in time. Um, not, not an easy and, and straightforward answer. Um, on your question about the politicians, uh, you know, in South Africa, we probably have a very special problem in terms of this, uh, be, because as you would have probably seen in the news, there's been quite a bit of, uh, uh, shall we call it, underhand government happening. Um, and, and kind of making the information available, you know, obviously would not be good for for, for politicians of that kind of nature. But I think there's a huge drive uh, in our government to really get things out there and to prove and to improve the, 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 the quality of information. I think in the end, politicians will be much better served if they can get their hands on proper analysis and proper information. And yes, you know, sometimes it's not gonna benefit uh, the, the little thing that I want to push, but in most of the instances, you, it will be a lot easier to sell your policy objectives if you can prove that there's, you know, that there's gonna be, uh, there's gonna be clear benefit um, in, in terms of that. Um, yeah, in terms of the of the opportunity cost, I think we've done um, we've done a lot of work when the decision was taken around Oracle to think about the costing and how that impacts. Because we've got multiple systems across multiple departments, there's a huge amount of money lying all over the system. So if one really pulls all of that together, we are going to get the the cost benefit. And I don't think that that is an issue. There are other issues that's been impacting in terms of our procurement process and stuff like that, that's been holding back uh, the system reform. Um, you know, if you think about my Cape Town example of, you know, taking the wires out of the wall, uh, it is probably because they were supposed to have been taken out 10 years ago already, because the, the, the technology has just been advancing so much that 
suddenly this thing becomes a much more, more expensive because we've not been doing the right things for, for a long time. These initiatives are often not uh, focused on uh, because there's no ribbon to cut. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier for a politician to go out to a school, cut the ribbon and say to the community, there's your school. Uh, when we implemented the chart of accounts on the 1st of April, 2004, uh, we asked our DG to kind of, you know, and it was like, so is there like a button that we're going to press or a thing? Or so, you know, what, what's going to happen here? Uh, is it just a speech that boring? So, so a lot of, a lot of this stuff, you know, is, it's not really stuff that's in the limelight. Uh, it has long-term advantages, provides, you know, improvements in the long, in the longer term. And therefore, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to, to, to get that level of commitment. There's also the issue of trade-offs. Uh, if, if you're in a country like South Africa, where there are huge social needs, massive unemployment, uh, to go out there and try to lobby for a few billion rand to stick into, you know, some fancy system that's going to uh, give us advantages 10 years from now is it's not an easy thing to to get funded and moving i, I hope that yeah no that's great Thanks. um Alok, robert do you want to come into so marco's question around users and then perhaps i don't know emily and james do you want to try and take the agile one yeah sure marco on on uh question who responded to the survey i uh, we actually circulated survey to the ministers and in some cases to the principal secretaries in most of the countries. And then it was who basically decided and gave it this task to compile the responses to someone in the Ministry of Finance. And in many countries, like uh, it was either budget department or the treasury department who consolidated responses, you know, from different stakeholders. Because in few cases, uh, which we have not presented here, like uh, how data volume grew over a period of time. So those kind of questions were not like to be responded by the business person, but by the technical technological persons. So it was like the mix of, you know, inputs from the different type of uh, individuals in the Ministry of Finance to come up with uh, with the response. Maybe Robert can give some specific examples from Seth. Yeah, it was uh, seven of the 11 countries participating and it was like from head of macro department to assistant minister for the treasury to budget analysts to um, head of IT sector to head of public investment evaluation unit. So uh, quite diverse, but indeed we had uh, usually two to three respondents who submitted a joint um, answer um, from a different perspective. Please, Alok. Yeah, thank you. And, and, uh, and Mark, uh, yeah, so I suppose the first thing to say is that um, there is a, a limited number of examples right at the heart of, of PFM and finance ministries, as Emily mentioned at the start, have generally been one of the slower parts of any government to adopt the kind of emerging practices. Um, but in the final session today, I think we'll hear a few more stories from folks like Ania over there and others about how they've um, uh, applied some of these practices and, and changing ways of doing things um, in their contexts. Um, and the second paper that we've published uh, talks about some of the some of the obstacles that teams have to overcome in adopting these. Um, but talking from my own experience um, and thinking particularly the revenue side in the UK, um, HMRC made a move from having what was the 
largest IT contract in Europe, um, connect, um, covering systems that, similarly to what Henry was saying, certainly predate me, um, <laughs> governing large parts of our tax system. Um, but starting in about 2011, 2012, as the end of that big contract was coming, uh, there was a real drive to, to change that and to do it through an approach of saying, how can we give citizens a much more joined up experience of tax? So bringing in the personal tax account um, that most UK citizens now use to understand where they are with tax um, and uh, some new approaches to business tax. And, and the starting point for that was forming some, some agile teams who had some quite clear outcomes in terms of very simple user interfaces for that and a lot of agency in terms of how did they wrap the legacy systems that were sitting there in new interfaces that let them innovate on top of it. Um, and they, they very successfully exited that, that large contract um, with no major um, shakeup. There were no headlines other than this contract has ended, which was uh, success in itself and too rare. Um, but particularly we saw through, um, through the start of the pandemic, uh, the, the new platforms and new approaches that they put in place enabled the Treasury to very quickly um, work with HMRC to put some new payments in place that were based on people's tax data, um, which was really a result of having built teams that could work in an agile way. Um, there are definitely other examples from around the world, but hopefully events like this will, will help us draw out more of those and, and create an environment for um, more exploration. That's great, James. Thanks. So we've got... Um... One more round. So we've got Danielle and then the the the, the lady. Uh, do you want to think? Um, start here and then to Danielle. Yeah. Okay. Welcome. Come. Okay. Um, hi, so the lady in pink is Louise from Visa Government <laughs> Solutions. Very nice to meet you. Um, uh, I've got a couple of questions, if I may, actually, um, cheeky. But um, so I'd love to ask, um, what role do you believe donors and agencies have got in supporting a uh, whole of government approach, agile approach, and looking at interoperable solutions? What would you like to see them do more of and less of? Um, and my second question was around, we've, we talked about interoperability and collaboration within government. I'm also wanting to ask, do you collaborate across government? So between um, individual you know, governments in a particular region, is there a collaboration um, and lessons that could be learned and shared um, within that arena? Thank you. Great questions, thank you. Um, Danielle? Thanks, so mine is in response to the question on Agile from either. Um, so I'm also affiliated with an organization called the Collaborative Africa Budget Reform Initiative, and we've extensively used the problem-driven iterative adaptation approach, which is, obviously related to agile and I think um, there's two angles of it it's the process and then the outputs and outcomes and of course everyone is interested in the outputs and outcomes but um, I think what matters also is where the user needs and the problem identification sits so with the the image that Emily showed of waterfall versus agile your user needs on the agile part are right in the front and that is the emphasis and really diagnosing the problem figuring out the local context, saying this is what people want to see happen and what the kind of information they need, and this is how we develop the system. And then obviously in a waterfall approach, it's you saying, this is the system that we're going to buy. Let, as um, Dr. Jones was saying, we have to now try and figure out how to customize our processes according to a system that is already built. So I think that's, the, that's one of the shifts. And then um, just in terms of how Agile actually really helps you diagnose those problems. Um, 
And I mean, so I worked with a team um, in Ghana from the Ministry of Finance, and their key problem was that the there were significant delays in the release of funds from the Ministry of Finance to line ministries. And they were trying to diagnose this problem and figure out, is it that they're not getting information on time from, from the line ministries? And that's the key cause. No, they ruled that out. The, you know, the schedule officer said they're getting these documents on time. So then the next step was, that, is it the Ministry of Finance's um, like slowness in terms of responding to these requests? And what it was, was that the um, budget director who was meant to sign off on these releases was often traveling and out of country, or she was really busy and just had like hundreds of thousands of requests on her desk. So what this team did after like thoroughly diagnosing the problem, speaking to multiple different stakeholders about what could be the nature of the problem, they decided to develop an app that the budget director had on her phone that essentially enabled her to give permission for these funds to be released. So that's like a truly homegrown solution in response to a problem that's been locally identified, locally understood. And then, yes, I mean, a, a big part of the, the cumbersome processes is reduced. So that's how I see Agile, is starting from a problem and figuring out small solutions to fix it and trying it and not spending huge amounts of money necessarily in one big bang approach, but rather slowly rolling out solutions that actually will improve functionality. Thanks. Daniel, great example. I would like that app and my team would as well. Nicola. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'd like to, to jump back to this procurement issue that was mentioned, and especially with the this agile approach. Do you think, do the panels think that there is a, a, a problem with the way we buy with the procurement? Is it holding us back to get this agile approach? Uh, the way we spend is different in the, in, 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 in the public sector. I mean, we are more accountable. So we cannot just say, let's invest on artificial intelligence because that sounds cool. And we'll see in a few years if that brings some result. And we'll tell the parliament that we didn't spend the money they voted because it's, it's cooler than just building schools or hospitals. And we need to have some case. And the case is usually for next year budget, as was mentioned somehow. So do we have a, a limit because of our procurement procedures? I can, Sheila, one last question, and then I think we'll have to give people a chance to respond. Yeah, good morning. Um, so just kind of following on from what um, Danielle was saying and James, it's, it's for me, the question's going, you know, at the back of my mind is how do you build those agile teams to kind of, to define the problem, to, to then, you know, kind of define needs and work on it. So I think that's, you know, maybe if there's a willingness, then how, where do you start from, I think? I'm curious about. Right. Thanks, <laughs> Sheila. I think that there was maybe one at the back. We can take one last one because I think that Agile Teams is the last session. Is sorry? Is there one? Okay. One, one. So we've got two more. Yeah, go for it, Dan. Yeah, thanks. I'll stand just because I'm, you know, short and in the back here. So <laughs> uh, Dan Honig, University College London. Um, I really, really enjoyed the discussion here. I um I found myself thinking a little bit uh, during the presentation of the data, of the fiscal data and its, and its non-use um, about the Einstein quote, uh, you know, the definition of insanity is to um, try something, the same thing over and over and expect different results. Um, and I guess I found myself thinking that, you know, I feel we've been, I feel digitalization has been on the forefront of how we're going to improve performance here in a way very consistent with the sort of South African experience of taking the people out of the system 
for 15, 15, 20 years, right? And we have some marvelous cases of it working and we've just heard a few of them. Um, but it seems to me those cases need to be thought about against the many cases where perhaps it's not working so well um, as we heard from, uh, from our IMF colleagues. Um, and so that gives rise, I promise a question is coming. So that, that gives rise to two questions here. So the first is, um, you know, is there, uh, is now the time uh, to start thinking about a different sort of strategy in those cases where we've seen very little progress over the last 15, 20 years? Um, it, it, does that mean something like what our colleague from Cabri, what Rachel just articulated, and um, a different strategy inside the digitalization sort of, you know, technology window, or could it mean something outside of it? And then my follow-up question to that is, if now is not the time to stop and step back, what would be? What would be the condition? What would be the information that would give us pause and say, this broad strategy for reform is not leading us in the direction we want to go? And so we should take you know, a larger conceptual step back and think about something else entirely. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. And then the gentleman. Yeah, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Gary Bandu. I'm an independent, it says. Um, also, as James said earlier, I, I'm of the generation that can remember the internet, um, as that was. Um, and I can remember complaining to people um, maybe 30 years ago that, that we would never modernize our finance department while the senior managers didn't do their own email. And it took a global pandemic, really, to get people to use video conferencing that had been around for 20 plus years. So do you think finance ministries need to recruit different people. People, senior managers who are actually digital, chief technology officers and the like who can understand this because if it remains with people like me, <laughs> old timers, it probably won't get modernized. Great, thanks Gary. So we've got, I'm, I'm gonna take five minutes of coffee, is that okay? I blame the first group because they overran. Um, I've got a hand up uh, from a lock. I, do you want to do you want to come in? Is that a question or do you want to also sort of give a kind of one minute final sort of thoughts as well? There's lots of quite big questions there that I think we're going to be continuing to tackle through the day. So perhaps yeah. kind of final your main takeaways and um, any like, yeah. Uh, and thank you, Mark. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was actually uh, very much uh, amazed by the questions on the Agile and uh, the discuss discussions around that. And I practiced and led Agile methodology in Government of India for nine years. And uh, we developed the PFM systems using Agile methodologies. And that point of time, like it was service-oriented architecture, which we utilize, you know, to start building the plant, prototyping different solutions, starting from, you know, uh, tracking of uh, government expenditure. So I can talk a lot about that, but one question was someone was asked, maybe I'm not supposed to answer that, but I'm very much tempted to share my experience on that, like the buy thing, you know? So what we did like uh, when we were implementing this agile methodology to develop our PFM system, we didn't buy anything actually. So what we did, like we created a team of individuals. So I was leading the initiative. So I had like the two teams, one from the business side and one from the technology side. So it was like the in-house development. And when we developed one prototype, we went to field, piloted it, and we came back and we kept on, you know, improving that prototype before you know, 
final implementation. So we kept on using that agile methodology to actually meet the different requirements because the, those prototypes were not for like the one state in the government of India. It was like the whole federal government. So it was a very nice experience. And we didn't buy, we just buy but the technology, you know, software and hardware but no company to do the you know development of solutions so it was all done using agile methodology and in you know on our own so uh, i can talk a lot about that but i will go back to my topic on ftz basically and someone asked like it is it now time to basically look at you know and see like how what we need to do differently and that is exactly we are also trying to you know uh, develop and say like See, you know, we keep on doing the digitalization. We will keep on doing the digital, uh, you know, PFM digitalization, investing in technologies, bringing more technologies, improving the processes. But the way individuals are also interacting with their systems, because they are the point of contact uh, when the data comes into the system, they are responsible for processing it. So why not formalize that and make that also very much, you know? you know, uh, formal to improve the data quality. We need to look at that also. Sorry, I've taken more time. Problem a lot, thank you. Uh, Dr. Jones, you want to come in? There was the, particularly the question about um, donors and collaboration that maybe you want to speak to, but any other final reflections? Mm -hmm. But just one minute. <laughs> so speak very quickly. Okay. <laughs> no, yes, um, so we always say donors and agencies, they have a lot of convening power. And they also do a lot of work around thought leadership. So I think in this space, when we're looking um, to help countries lead on their digital transformation, I think donors can help with the thought leadership and convening, getting like-minded people from different parts um, of the pie. So the PFM specialists, the tech people, the, the practitioners that have been rolling um, PFM reforms out on a daily basis together to exchange ideas and see how they can best roll out some of these interventions. Of course, donors come in a lot with the resources, financial resources, technical assistance, so they can also help with that. And for countries, we do collaborate across countries because we do go on study tours to see lesson learns and how different countries have rolled it out, what lessons we could bring back. So definitely there's a space for agencies to help support with that. And around um, whether ministries of finance should recruit new people and stuff like that. I think one of the first things every country should do is have an overarching strategy that will guide the different um, institutions in how they proceed with this. So for example, in Sierra Leone, we have a national um, innovation and digital strategy that's a 10 year roadmap that different um, implementing entities would, would, mm -hmm. would leverage when they design whatever they want to do in terms of digitalization for their different um, uh, mandates. So it's like making sure they use hybrid technologies, making sure you consider mobile first. So there's an overarching strategy that shows top political will for the transformation to happen. And then everyone can fit into that based on their different mandates and how they can come together to drive the change they want to see. In terms of um, skill sets, I think we <laughs> need to, um, digital literacy is important. So it's having um, teams that have different skill sets in. So you will still have your regular um, people, but then reforming the civil service and stuff to bring in these new um, spaces. Cause like, for example, oh, a, a data scientist <laughs> is not a typical role. You see advertised in the civil service. Everyone needs to come in as an economist or something. So it's how we also change what 
skills we recruit for. Okay. So it's not kicking anybody out, but <laughs> retooling. Having retooling. A, yes, having a good skills mix. Any? No, I'll get a minute. Yeah. You know, that's going to be tough. But you're around for the day, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Donors, definitely. They must just fund, fund the whole project. We'll be so happy. <laughs> I, think you I think you mentioned the issue of Cabri and the collaboration and, uh, across different governments. I think that's key. In, in a number in a number of these these projects in terms of agile um, the one thing that is definitely holding us back is how we procure in government and and it's going to require a very different way of thinking about procurement and, and making projects work and and that's always difficult because in in most of our public finance management acts throughout most of the world there's you know way too many limits in, in making that work. So it is definitely something that we need to think about. I fully agree with you. We need a pandemic in finance. Uh, it is time that, you know, it is time that you, if you only get access to the doors if you come in on, on, on rollerblades and have the latest, uh, the latest version of a cell phone. Um, then I think, I think on your question, is it time for a very different approach? Uh, yes, it is. And I think the question we must ask ourselves is what are the incentives that drive us? Uh, I've got a very nice example of one of our insurance companies that's got a fabulous system of, of manage the, managing their whole accounting system. The incentive being that they will be making a lot more profit by making that work. What is the incentive that is really driving governments to change and make this work better? And, and I don't think we have, we have really cracked that and, and we understand what it is that's going to make the politicians take a, a, a different decision. Great. Thank you, Osher. Okay. Great, thank you. <laughs> Robert, did you have something? You've got your hand up, 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, maybe just to quickly add, if uh, in case of cyber attacks or in case of COVID pandemic, there is a lot of uh, agility of officials to start, for example, using private computers, emails, social media, uh, maybe we try to understand how this readiness to be agile, how actually institutions can enable it within the institution to try out new solutions, talk about what works, uh, exchange good practices, each, uh, talk about challenges. That's very related to this approach that Cabri is also using to provide the safe environment to, to learn and promote knowledge sharing. And Maybe later, um, the example of the digitalization of the economic reform program that Andrea uh, Alexowski might share might give some example on how such collaboration could work. Great. Thank you, Robert. I'm not going to try and do a kind of summary of everything that's been discussed, because I think a lot of these themes are going to come up again during the day around sort of digital, building digital teams, procurement, some of these issues, the importance of people. I want to let you have coffee because I can see that that is needed for many of you. Um, and I think this has been a great platform, though, for discussions for the rest of the day. I think it really we've, we've heard that things are not working that well, but also some seeds of pockets of ideas that really can help us think about this call for action. Is there different ways we can be doing things instead of just repeating doing the same things again that aren't giving the managers what they want or the public what they want. So I think it's a fantastic platform for the rest of the day. I just leaves me to thank our fantastic panelists. Thank you so much for sharing your reflections. Also online, Robert and Alok, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.